Hello, it's Thursday, July the 20th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. I'm coming to you today from Hoover's Washington, D.C. office, high atop the corner of 14th Street and New York Avenue, a couple blocks away from the White House. I'd like to give thanks to our crack staff for setting up this broadcast, and I'd like to thank Willis Carrier. It was on a cold, foggy Pittsburgh train platform in 1902 that Mr. Carrier, at the time a 26-year-old Cornell-educated engineer, stared through the mist and realized that he could dry air by passing it through water to create a fog. Doing so would make it possible to manufacture air with specific amounts of moisture in it. Four years later, Mr. Carrier was granted U.S. patented 808-897 for what was described at the time as, quote, an apparatus for treating air. You and I call it air conditioning. And on days like this in Washington, D.C., you thank Mr. Carrier for air conditioning. (laughs) It's little facts like this that make our nation great and make for great reading, and that takes us to today's guest. Carl M. Cannon is Real Clear Politics Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief. He is also the author of a book that's hot off the press this week on this date, From the Pilgrims to Today, Discovering America One Day at a Time. Carl, I usually see you in California, but I see you today on your home ground. Great to see you. And such nice weather. Lovely weather, isn't it? It's been going on like this for like a couple weeks now. Well, it's a, for those of you who are not out here with us in Washington, it's about 100 degrees outside. The humidity is probably 85%. You, you, you remember that the British didn't want this property. They didn't. They probably thought we were crazy to build a capital here. I know it's one of those days where you do not want to flip up the weather thing on your phone to where it says, you know, weather, humidity, what it feels like. Right. <laughs> feels like bad. Let's talk about the book. Sure. The inspiration for the book comes from? Well, you know, I do this morning newsletter. Um, I'm the Washington Bureau Chief of Real Clear Politics, and a lot of people do these newsletters. Uh, Mike Allen, who was then at Politico, kind of perfected it. Mm -hmm. And what you're really trying to do is send out, you get a list, and you send out an email list, and mine's about 20,000. I think Politico's is probably 10 times that. And you try and get people to come to your site and look at the interesting stories you have. But that's kind of old and boring and a little hucksterish. So I started throwing in, here's something that happened on this date history and pretty soon I began writing essays and what I tried to do in most days was relate relate something that happened in the past and maybe something is going on today mm-hmm. it's not as hard as you think because we, we you know, history doesn't repeat itself but there are themes that come up and it's important to know how we dealt with them and and what's and also what's different about now compared to before and so I began writing these little essays and by and by friends of mine um, said, you know, you've written a book. And I, it wasn't quite true. I had to. I wrote 368 of these essays, uh, 366, because you got to do leap year, and then two extras, two days. I just thought I'm just going to write two this day, and they're about 400 words each, 450. Uh, you know, you don't have to read them in order, although they're and they're not laid out in order. They're January 1st to December 31st, but they, you know go from year to year back and forth mm-hmm. and trying to build us some themes but not chronological themes. So where do you find, first of all, the inspiration for the data? I know you can go on the web and type in what happened on this day and certain date and up pop a million sites, but is, is it as simple as doing that or do you have a certain place you'd like to go to? I can take you behind the curtain now because I've already written the book, right? Um, it started, there's four or five websites. The uh, National Archives has one, mm-hmm. Library of Congress, um, New York Times has one, History Channel has one, there's this day in science, this day in baseball. That Cooperstown has one. So <clears throat> I had a half dozen of these sites, and I would pick one. When I started this five years ago, I'd pick one. But after, as I got into it and began thinking I'm doing a book, I would <clears throat> instead pick a 
so I would come across something in my reading and I'd have this file on this day I'm going to write about this. Right. And then later, the sort of, so the most advanced incarnation of it was, I'd figure out something I wanted to write about and then go find a date that corresponded. That's a little harder, mm-hmm. but you begin to think like Google, you begin to think like a machine. Right. And I was able to find, you know, 366 of them, 368 of them. The truth of it is, you're writing about American history, you could have done any of 100 for any date. Right. Certain dates were evergreens, November 22nd. Right, and I did, I, I actually, yes, I wrote about that. And 9-11. 9-11, and July 4th. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Gettysburg, I wrote about Gettysburg. But <clears throat> most of the dates in here are things that are more obscure than that. Mm-hmm. The, I didn't, there's certain things, if you're going to write about America, you just have to write about. But <clears throat> the first, <clears throat> the opening is January 1st, it's 1915, is the first female cab driver in New York. And, you know, she's not Rosa Parks or anything, but it's an interesting story, and it tells you something about how the police, the patrolman got his paper, looked at her thing, yeah, seems to be in order. Mm-hmm. Then the cabbies caucused. How right. do we feel about it? Well, you know what? I know that lady. She works around, she works in a garage. She can actually work on cars. Okay, Wilma Rousey is her name. Then the, finally the last barrier is how will the passengers feel? Female cab driver. And it didn't take, took a few minutes to find out. A couple of young swains hailed her cab, said, where do you want to go, boys? And they said, oh, we don't have anywhere we want to, we just want to ride in your cab. Right. So that's the opening. I did some digging, so today's July 20th, I did some sleuthing into what happened on July 20th, and this is kind of a window into what's great about what you do. So there's one huge historical thing that happened on July 20th, which the, is the moon land. man lands on the moon. But if you go to 1968, July 20th, it's the first Special Olympics in Chicago. That's an interesting story because that takes you into the world of the Shrivers and the Kennedys. If you go on that date in 1881, Carl, that's when Sitting Bull surrenders to the U.S. Army. There's an interesting story. If you go on that date to 1859, it's the first paid admission to a baseball game. Well, see, and there's these threads, and it's fascinating. Um, One of the ones I do is, in my book, is, is Reagan, Ronald Reagan's, Mr. Gorbachev tearing down that wall speech. Right. That's familiar to a Hoover audience. Mm-hmm. Peter Robinson drafted that speech. Right. Um, but I'd already set it up because you had, I had the Berlin airlift. I had Jack Kennedy's Hickman-Ein Berliner speech. Well, if it hadn't been for the Berlin airlift, there's no Berlin for Kennedy to deliver his speech in. Exactly. And, and Reagan is building on, and you have these three presidents, all of whom were essential. And if you, what you, th- and if you think about it in that way, you can use this one speech to, sh- to show, which is that every American president, from Harry Truman through George H.W. Bush, fought the Cold War. They didn't all fight it with equal fervor or equal effectiveness. Uh, Jimmy Carter, who comes in for a lot of criticism, he canceled the Olympics, which is also in my book, but in another context, mm-hmm. the people that cost medals. He canceled the Olympics that were going to be in Moscow. And every pre- you had this continuity in the Oval Office, Republican, Democrat, it didn't matter standing up really for freedom and so out of a you know a, a short vignette you can you can tell a lot right so there was a book party for you here at the hoover office last night your organization real clear politics through it but we we provided the venue for it and it well, was i kind of think of myself as an adjunct hoover guy you know i've spent a lot of time out you've there you've been a with... fellow at hoover for how many years now Almost i think as I, long as i've been at Hoover. i must hold the record <laughs> well we keep bringing you back for some reasons so and we must like you but 
uh, there was a, a party for you, but it was not the prototypical Washington party in the sense the room was full of your friends, and I could tell why, because people picked up a copy of your book and then did not do that DC thing, which is immediately open it to the back and see if their name was in it. <laughs> I went to my hotel room last night and started reading your book, and I did go to the back of it, not to look at my name was in it, just to see who all popped up in it. And I found two things that were in it quite a lot. Number one, Ronald Reagan. But this is personal for you. Look, Reagan is, yes. Reagan, Reagan is, for me, you know, my father is considered Reagan's top biographer. Right, the, the name Lou Cannon is not in the back of the book, but why don't you tell our audience who Lou Cannon Luke is? Lou Cannon, he covered the White House for many years for the Washington Post. He, he covered Ronald Reagan as far back in Sacramento. And he's your papa. And he's my dad. And, uh, and he and I wrote a book together that we finished at the Hoover Institution um, called Reagan's Disciple, in which we compared George W. Bush, the legacy of George W. Bush, to Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've written about Reagan. But also, but if you're writing about America, and especially if you care about the 20th century, this guy, he keeps coming up. You know, he's a he's a recurring thing. He's in the right. Screen Actors Guild. He's in he's in California at the time of the free speech riot movement. He he's a, an enduring American figure. Um, so is like Roosevelt. I mean, my favorite president, heck, if I would if I left to my own devices, I probably would have had 50 items on Lincoln. We can't do 50 on Lincoln, so I do a few. Right. Um, but, but Reagan, but you know, you've, I also find out something about myself, Bill. I'm writing this book, sure, and it's not fiction. The characters don't have their own minds, like a great novelist would discover. But I'm, tr there's more Truman than Roosevelt. So you know, you know, why is that? Well, Harry, Tr look, Harry Truman leaves office with poll numbers like Richard Nixon when he leaves office. Uh, they're you know, lower than Jimmy Carter, lower than George W. Bush. He Democrats won't run with this guy. He's considered a, a, a boob and a rube and nobody incompetent, but a truth teller. <clears throat> and as we've, in, you know, during Richard Nixon's administration, Truman kind of got a comeback. But also there's other things, more enduring things. Truman, after World War II, a war really, if you think about it, we fight to end, you know, these racist, fascist regimes in Tokyo and Berlin. And we fight against Nazism and, and whatever the Japanese called their imperialist views, but we're very racialist. But then these black GIs and black airmen and sailors come back and they're discriminating against, they can't vote. They get lynched, they have these horrors visited on them. Truman ends that with a stroke of the pen. He does with one, without, with barely a comment, what, what, you know, FDR, Eleanor Roosevelt couldn't get FDR to even talk about. And so I think part of the thing is you're looking back with perspective and in some ways Truman is a more admirable character than some of these other people who have bigger names. He was. Truman is also resurrected in part by McCullough, who writes the book on Truman. He's resurrected in part by James Whitmore, who does the Broadway uh, play. He's resurrected by the, the rock band Chicago. Uh, don't they do the song, America Needs, needs a Harry Truman, Needs a Man Like Harry Truman? Well, also, uh, he's resurrected by a couple of dubious sources, too. Uh, one of them is Merle Miller writes a book called Plain Speaking, mm -hmm. while Nixon's president and all these aphorisms and all these things that Truman said, except it turned out he didn't say them. Miller made them up because the, 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 uh, the interviews were all taped. And some years after the thing became a runaway bestseller and helped restore Truman, uh, some scholar went back and looked at it, and Miller made these things up with the irony of a book called Plain Speaking that has got Jason Blair-type fabrications and it is too rich. The other thing is, and you know this, Bill, the famous line, you know, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog, attributed to Truman. That's another thing. It's sort of beat Truman, you know, is this iconoclast who sees through the hypocrisy of Washington, but the line is never out. Truman didn't say it and wouldn't have said it. 
he didn't like dogs, and he, can, he was, grew up on a farm to him. They were working animals, and he had plenty of friends in Washington. It comes from a play, and the line is, if you want a friend in life, get a dog, right. attributed to Truman, but it's fiction. Um, that's the other thing in this, this book. Is, this is the great challenge of actually doing this book because the Internet, all the information gets sourced. Uh, there are great stories with great quotes in them, and I've, I've sent you one today uh, since we share a love for baseball, and there's a great story in baseball uh, that may be true or may not, and that's that right after Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, Gaylord Perry of the Giants hit a home run. A baseball pitcher who was not a very good hitter hits a home run. And why is that relevant? Because supposedly a year before, maybe a few years earlier, his manager Alvin Dark told a reporter there'll be a man on the moon before Gaylord Perry hits a home run. So it's a great story, and of course you just want to bull rush and put that into a column, but here's the problem. Nobody quite knows if Alvin Dark said it or not. It, uh, it kind of sounds like Alvin Dark. He right. was pre-acerbic. But it's, it's, it really comes under the category of stories in newsrooms we used to call too good to check. Exactly. Um, but too good to, but, but if you're writing history, it's all, you have to check it all. Right. So that's a story you tell in a bar but not put in a book. Unfortunately, the Internet has sort of um, fused these two forms of human communication. And so right. bar talk often does end up in books. So the challenge with the book, it wasn't as simple as just cutting and pasting and voila, I have a book. You had to go back and actually recheck stories to make sure everything added up. Right? Well, that's right. And I... Again, and like I said, I didn't want to pick 50 Lincoln ones. I went back and looked at all my notes for the last five and a half years. And some days I had six things. I thought, oh, these are all great. And some days I had none. And and I had to go find new ones. And the other, you know, and also some days I think, well, why, why do I keep writing about Lincoln on this day? Well, because it's the day he delivered the Gettysburg Address, that's why. Right. But you can only have that once. So, um, yeah, I had to re-report and rewrite them all. It was more work than I thought it was going to be, but it was fun work. Right. So we are, today is the six-month anniversary of Trump taking the oath. So we are just, if he goes four years, who knows how long this president goes. It could go four years, eight years. It could go another four weeks for all we know. <laughs> um, but it's very early in the ballgame, Carl, but if you're looking down the road to another book like this and trying to figure where Trump fits in in terms of things Trump did, what stands out right now? The day he comes down the escalator? Well, yes. If, you, if, if, if Trump was frozen in time right now. If he retired from public life and became like Howard Hughes and never made news again, never tweeted again. I don't know how that would happen, but they'd have to, maybe the, the island where he retreated to and the mythical hermit Donald Trump would not have <laughs> Wi-Fi, not have internet connection. But there's, there's things he's done. He, um, and they might not be the things we think of now in politics. Um, this reality television show. It's in. I have a chap. I have a thing on the the Hollywood strike. One of my entrants that led to the show Cops. That led to all these reality shows. Ending in The Apprentice. Yeah. Donald Trump probably wouldn't be president. Yeah. Speaking of reality and these things, we are speaking just a few hours before O.J. Simpson maybe or maybe is not let out of jail. So. Right. Right. And and um, but but Donald Trump brought. You'd go back to his time in the 80s and 90s when he's the darling of the tabloids in New York. He's a real estate developer. These guys aren't stars. He's he's a person. He's a crossover, uh, you know, artist, if you will, who realizes that the, the old adage, "Get my," you know, "Accuse me of murder, but get my name spelled right." Just get your name in the newspaper. That there's actually some utility to it in real estate, and that you can being brash and have a reputation for for uh, screwing people to use his the phrase he uses all the time can actually be helpful and profitable. He likes the tabloids. He likes squaring out beautiful women. He likes he likes his own, the look of his own face. If you look at these pictures, he's a handsome young guy. 
when he's in his 30s and 40s even. Um, and he decides to, so you, you want to go back in some of these events, the, the third bankruptcy declares without, and he treats it like a minor speed bump. Right. And you'd start to see sort of the crony capitalism and the whole future that that's unfolding before us. And then this television show he had. In terms of uh, being in public life, you know, Donald Trump could have run as a Democrat. Probably would have won their primary. He would have had to have a different thing to demagogue about. It wouldn't have been Mexico or Mexicans, but it would have been something. Because mm-hmm. um, he was for socialized medicine and pro-choice. And he's not really an ideological person or a party person. In the last 15 years before he ran for president, I think he'd been a Republican, a Democrat, a Reform Party member, an independent, a Republican again. So you'd look, you'd look at, at that. The other thing, yeah, the speech where he comes down that escalator in Trump Tower, June 19, 2015, and says, Mexicans are rapists. I mean, what kind, of, what kind of announcement is this that you could ever think that you could announce for president by saying, oh, and I'm sure there's a few good people. You know, I wrote a book about the Declaration of Independence and had a chapter on American exceptionalism. Who gets American exceptionalism? Presidents and immigrants for a hundred years. Academics don't get it, but the ordinary people do. Well, this guy doesn't, he doesn't look at it that way. This is a whole new thing. So yeah, that, that day. Um, I also think you look at the inaugural address, which was, in my opinion, a real missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. You, had, you had this, half the country didn't, you, you know, half the, more than half the voters voted against him. That's the time we're in. But he didn't even get a plurality of the vote. And everybody keeps saying, well, you know, he lost $3 million and most of them are in California. Fine. He's still the president. Right. And he act, he's the one who acts like he's not still the president, too. Not just these, you know, the next day there's a rival inaugural parade, the Women's March. You know, it's an anti-Trump event. It's got more people than the inauguration. That's not great for democracy. That, that has a hint of not accepting the results of an election. But Donald Trump himself talks this way. He keeps campaigning in the inaugural address. He, he fibs about the size of his crowd compared to the size of Barack Obama's inaugural crowd. He does these things, and he, he gets off on the wrong fit, his foot, and, and, he, and he reminds us <clears throat> why inaugural addresses the way they are. How do you handle January 20th in your book? Uh, I, I have a series of um, great lines from inaugural addresses. One of them is not from the 2017 inaugural address. Let's switch gears and talk a bit about your profession. So um, I was I was really fascinated by looking at the crowd uh, at your book event last night. Uh, a lot of people I've recognized uh, from journalism over the years in Washington, and uh, I just wonder at this stage in your career, Carl. So you st- your first jo- your first job in journalism would have been Paperboy, right? That's right. For the what the Chronicle, <clears throat> delivering the San Francisco Chronicle while okay. living in Sacramento. And you grew up with the father who was a, an angst-stained wretch. He was a newspaper man, right? Yep. Yep. You started as a newspaper man, too. You came up through, uh, what, the Mercury News? I came the, the old-fashioned way. To, I worked at a weekly newspaper in Reston, Virginia, out of college, then a small daily in Petersburg, Virginia, then a slightly larger daily in Columbus, Georgia, then San Diego U- Union Tribune for three years, when it was a pretty big paper, and then the San Jose Mercury News. They sent me to Washington. Um, I thought I'd get my ticket punched here and go back to California. Um, 
well, Reagan was president then, so I guess <laughs> it didn't work out. Right. Uh, so looking around the crowd, I saw I saw fellows who were journalists in Washington back in the days when they were such things as August bureaus here, news bureaus, Copley News Service, for example, which you would have been a part of with the Union Trib. No, like George Condon was here George Condon, night. right, used to have a great bureau here in Washington. Right. The LA Times used to have a huge bureau in Washington and so forth, big Washington presences. I saw uh, individuals in the crowd who were uh, really at the vanguard of the intersection of, of uh, journalists and what we call today punditry and talking heads. I saw people in the crowd who today are at the vanguard. Stephen Hayes, Weekly Standard, Fox News was there, for example. You've been in this town for 30-plus years now. Yeah. Not to date you too much, but you've seen a lot of evolution in this town. So let's talk a bit about where, where journalism stands in Washington in 2017. Well, the, there's there's so much that's gone on, and, and you know, this the Internet's changed everything. It's uh, Clayton Christensen of Harvard calls it a disruptive technology. Well, no kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, that... You've got this gizmo on your, is that an iPhone? That's an iPhone with the clock running. An iPhone on your desk here. There's more computing power in that bill than, than was at NORAD when I was a young reporter. Right. So, yeah, it was going to be disruptive. And it's, but let's just, so, but let's talk about a couple of things, two things. One of this idea that you can start at the top. It's an odd idea. Uh, Ezra Klein's sort of the poster boy of it. He's a blogger in college. Comes here, hired for the, by the Washington Post. His first job in journalism. Now he's got a, a thing, Vox, V-O-X, that, mm-hmm. you know, and <clears throat> talented young guy, but never covered a fire, never covered a courtroom, never covered a murder, never covered City Hall or State Capitol, Sacramento, a legislature, never did any of this stuff that you do. And the question is, did these things build, uh, give you a foundation for to write about journalism in a more uh, knowledgeable, thoughtful, comprehensive way? I would argue without singling out any, I mean, I, these young people, there were a lot of them at the party and a lot of them, I've mentored some of them, so I'm, I'm not critical of them, I've hired some of them, I've helped some of them skirt the model, so I'm not mm-hmm. picking on anyone, but I'm not sure it's the right, I don't, I'm not sure they have enough of a foundation to write about politics and American public life um, and to have the influence that they have. The other, another change I would mention is this, you know, you mentioned George Condon. Now, George George is a good friend of mine. He, I mean, and when I say good friend, he's the godfather of one of my children, that close. He and I worked in San Diego together, then I went up to San Jose, and we both got jobs in Washington at the same time. We drove across country together. I was going to be a regional reporter in the San Jose Mercury News Bureau and the old Knight Ritter Newspapers Bureau. George was going to, it was the heir apparent to take over the Copley Bureau, which he did. Um, but, and George stayed in that bureau. It, it was a big bureau, eight or ten people. Mm-hmm. And they covered the hell out of the San Diego. They covered national politics and local politics, both. Very ambitious. You would have covered my old boss, Pete Wilson, when he was a senator here. They did, and I did too. I covered Pete and with the Mercury News. Well, now, uh, <clears throat> well, Copley doesn't have, Copley's gone. Right. The, the chain's gone. Knight Ritter's gone. Um, and what that means is most members of Congress are not covered by anyone. They come to Washington, they never, and they're never covered again. How does that hurt? Well, Copley News. George Condon, the San Diego Union Tribune, Union Tribune and Copley jointly won a Pulitzer Prize for its investigations of Duke Cunningham, who was a corrupt congressman who was taking bribes. Well, if that bureau had folded a couple of years earlier, Duke could still be in Congress. And you, and you, you know, I heard David Simon, uh, the great writer, former Baltimore Sun and now a screenwriter who writes for these HBO, who wrote The Wire and Treme, he said, this is a, the best time to be a corrupt congressman. It, 
There's never been a time better than this. Nobody's covering you. Nobody's watching you. And that's a change. When I, when I was here, Pete Wilson, when uh, I covered Pete, he, we would have the California delegation reporters would come at a breakfast, and Otto right. Boss and these people would hold, and Bob White and these guys would convene a meeting, and Pete would be there, and we'd pepper him with questions, and we'd run back and, and then fan out, you know, 15, 10, 15 people. And we'd run out and try to nail down stories based on what we found, and we competed against each other. Well, no, 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 there's no, there's not a big enough delegation of reporters to have a, a meeting like that today. Exactly, different. So, Carl, the right will complain that the press needs to get off Donald Trump's back. The left will complain that the press is not doing its due diligence and needs to attack Trump even further. Who's right? Well, or take us in a third direction. Let's let's try a third direction. What I tell my young reporters who work for me, Bill, is look: if you can't, this guy's the duly elected president of the United States. If you can't cover him without breaking into hives, you probably need to find another business or at least another job. They, they don't need to find another business. Most of the places they could go would hire them. Um, and, and one of the ways I tell them to think about it is Donald Trump says outrageous things. Yeah, okay, we know that now. But he said outrageous things while he was running for president. This is not a new development. People voted for him knowing that. So when you write your stories, think of the 62 million people who voted for him and play a, just play a little mental game with yourself, which is if they're reading it, do they think I'm being fair to them? Not to Trump, to them. In other words, why did they vote for Donald Trump? And if you keep that in mind, I think you can cover him fairly. In terms of this, uh, this attitude, you know, resist, the resist movement of the Democratic Party, all I'll say about that is there was one other election in this country in which the losing side did not accept the verdict. That led to the deaths of 700,000 Americans and the maiming of twice that many and whole towns where the only men in the towns were, crip, were cripples because they had one leg, or a whole generation of men, you know, wiped out or wounded or left battle scarred. That is not a good result. Now, <clears throat> your average liberal does not want to be compared to the Southern segregationists of the 19th century right. because they'd say, and they're right, we're, look, we're not on the side of racism. We're against racism. Fair enough. Fair point. But the larger point to me is that you have elections and you have to abide by them or you don't have a democracy. That's my own view. Um, in terms of whether, then there's a, there's a third element though, and that is when Trump, when somebody writes a story and they have a fact wrong and Trump cries fake news, right. do they fight back or do they just accept it? And I don't know, I'm not sure what I think about that. I'd actually be curious what you think about it. Are we umpires? Are we supposed to just take the crap? Or is it, is it okay to push back? I think there, um, there are times where it's okay to push back. For example, um, the White House put out a press release the other day announcing that John Huntsman, new ambassador to Moscow, they misspelled his name in the lead of the, of the press release. Uh, I think that's worth a ding in the White House's direction, just pointing out they didn't spell the name, the man's name right. And why? Well, wait a minute. It, it's just wait kind a minute. Of, Huntsman did the same thing in his own presidential it, announcement. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it's a shot across the bow is the okay. point I'm making. It's just, you know, okay, you know, we make mistakes, you make mistakes in that way. Uh, the issue I would have with the, uh, there are two issues I would have with the press right now if it involves Trump, and I'm not defending Trump here necessarily. I didn't vote for Trump personally. Uh, I have a lot of issues with the way he's running government or not in terms of appointments and so forth, but um, I don't like the sanctimony that's going on right now. I don't understand why the Washington Post needs to put democracy dies in darkness on its masthead and things like that. It's just a little 
overdramatic. It's sort of like these people who overdosed on Aaron Sorkin too much. It's just it's taking themselves a little too seriously, if well, you ask me. Well, that's a good example, that democracy dies in darkness. I don't know who, I, I, I'm told by friends who work the post, that's a group effort. I imagine it went all the way up to Jeff Bezos. And right. I, nobody would really quarrel with it, right. per se. But that's that falls under the heading of, okay, but what does a Trump voter think when they read it? And I, th right. I think many of them think it, they read it as, screw Donald Trump. Right. We're out to get Donald Trump. Now, maybe that's unfair, but I think we need to be more careful with this. Mm-hmm. You know, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, Woodward, and Bernstein, Woodward and Bernstein spoke, and they were very good. Um, and they, Donald Trump wouldn't go. His White House boycotted it, which was, in my opinion, foolish. But, but they, and if you, but if you read what they read, wrote, you gotta. They were. They said, be careful. Yes, go after the guy and go after him hard, but be careful. And what and what we're not doing now is careful. Uh, MSNBC the other day had a cry on, and then and one of its commentators blurted out to a guest they had on a Demo some backbencher Democratic congressman mm -hmm. after the uh, meetings with Donald Trump Jr. and this sketchy Russian lawyer were revealed. Um, and the the question they asked the guy was collusion, treason, or stupidity. Well, okay. Now. <laughs> All right. Yes, pretty stupid right. to meet with the guy. I'll give right. you that. But it's only it's it's only collusion. It's not collusion if someone says a foreigner says Hillary Clinton was breaking the law, and I can bring you the evidence. Well, I'll, to take that meeting is not collusion. Collusion is a word with a meaning, and these and and people in journalism we're we're journalists, we're communicators, we're wordsmiths. We're supposed to know this. It means manipulating that information in concert with the Russians to affect the election. Maybe that happened. If that happened, Donald Trump will be impeached. But we don't have that yet. And in Watergate, we didn't go to impeachment from, you know, you know, follow the money to impeachment. We had to prove the whole case. And we haven't proved this case. And we, there may not be a case to prove. And I just, I just wish, our, I wish our people on our side, and when I say I mean the media, would take a deep breath and realize how they sound to people who don't agree with them. Yeah, I think, you know, a good example is as we're doing this right now, CNN is going into a big tizzy about what Trump said about his attorney general last night. Um, it's a serious matter if you're in Washington and you watch how the federal government is run. I'm not sure how many people way out in the heartland really care what Donald Trump thinks about his attorney general at the end of the day. Well, that is a perfect example, Bill. So the president says, if I'd have known he would recuse himself in Russia, I would have never appointed him. If you think this election was rigged by Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, that's virtually an admission of guilt. Right. But we don't have any facts that support that yet. So let's think what he, what what did he say? What a journalist ought to do, in my opinion, is take the most innocent explanation possible and think about that before writing. Show a little grace. Okay, what is the what is the most charitable thing that could mean? The most charitable thing it could mean is, uh, it's a pain in my butt that the people making these decisions in the Justice Department are people I don't even know because, because uh, you know, Sessions recused himself on the, most, on the issue of most important to the Democrats. Yeah. It's a reasonable thought, I think. It's a reasonable thing to say. But again, though, we're covering the president, right? And what is Donald Trump doing there? He's reading the stage directions, man. That's not what presidents are supposed to do. He has these thoughts. He needs to keep some of them to himself, you'd think. 
You're right. I think there are times also Carl the White House has to step up his game. I'll give you a good example. I was watching uh, Sean Spicer do a press briefing one day, and it was a day when the Patriots were at the White House. And there's Spicer going about his business and droning on about something. And Rob Gronkowski pokes his head into the room. And the thing comes to a halt, and everyone's looking at Gronkowski, and they do what people do. They get starstruck, and their jaws drop. So you're the press secretary, Carl, and here you have an opportunity. And what is that opportunity? Gronk, come on in. Come on <laughs> do in. Do the briefing. Take a question. Instead, what does Spicer do? Says, okay, Gronk, I've got this. Yeah. Others go away. I don't think they quite understand sometimes how to master the situation in the White House is the point. In other words, there is an opportunity just to bring in Gronk and take the oxygen out of the room and just kind of control the day. Instead, opportunity went away. And I'm curious about this in this regard, Carl. You have been a White House correspondent. You've sat in that room. What do you think is going on? You watch that dynamic right now. How much of this is on the press in terms of just how they approach the Trump White House, but how much is this on the Trump White House in terms of how they deal with, with, the, with the press? Well, look, if you... The, the partisanship is so overt, but the people in the room, we tend to have blinders. We, we accept, we have these little definitions. Oh, that's the editorial page. And right? you have an RCP person. We have, right. yeah, Alexis, Alexis Semenier, right. who covers the White House, covered it for National Journal, very respected reporter. Um, you know, we, we tend to, we, we're all a little bit of establishmentarians. It's never been done quite this way before. But if you're the Trump people, look, they had Saturday Night Live had uh, a woman an overweight woman actress play Sean Spicer in a demeaning and insulting way. Now, if you're a member of the media, you say, come on, man, that's Saturday Night Live. What's that got to do with anything? Well, but if you're a, a Trump voter or a person who works for Trump, you say, well, really? What does it have to do with anything? It's owned by NBC, which owns MSNBC. I mean, these people are out to get us. They work in the same building. They work for the same company. And I, I we need to be a little more conscious of that. But look, Spicer... I've known Sean, and he's an able guy. He was a Navy officer, and I, I respect him, and I like him. But, boy, he got off on the wrong foot with the press. That thing they did inaugural weekend of disputing the, the, the counts of the, the crowd size, right. that, was, that was not a trivial thing. The reporters, they're taking their measure of this guy. Why are they having a fight over cameras? Oh, well, that's interesting because... All the press says, well, we should have cameras in, but, but that's not really what, what we're referencing is. is White House briefings right now are done off. There's not a live camera following them right now. Right. So. But one thing our listeners should know is that there's not unanimity in the press corps. The print guys don't mind this. They can't say so No, publicly. I was going to say you're a print guy. You probably welcome this. We don't mind. Right. Yeah. Um, but, look, Mike McCurry is the one who started this mm -hmm. for Clinton. McCurry is on the record as saying he thinks the cameras were a bad idea and he regrets it. I think he and Ari Fleischer... Wrote a, uh, wrote a piece on this. Yeah, and Mike's been talking about it publicly, and he, his friends beat him up over it. His friends in the press corps beat him up over it. But he's been consistent on this since he left, even before he left the White House. He thinks there's grandstanding and preening that goes on on, the, on our side, from the media side. Yeah. Um, it goes both ways. They do it, too. He doesn't think it's helpful. On the other hand, I mean, let's play devil's advocate, though. Once you give somebody something and you take it away, it feels like you're taking away something. Right. And... And this thing made a star out of Spicer, so much so Saturday Night Live, you know, attacked him. Uh, they were getting good ratings. Trump like Trump supposedly likes ratings. What's the beef here? So I I kind of think that it was, I think it was a mistake for the White House to take them off camera. And if they don't like their performance, maybe they ought to perform better. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get into big picture journalism for a minute. So you you've gone from an age of well, you must have been trained on a typewriter. Mm -hmm. 
eventually had to go over to probably, true. probably go to a trash 80 and learn how to use before that, that yeah. there was the ibm selectric a, right a transition technology you're probably not old enough Bill, remember i'm that? old enough for that i'm old enough to remember painfully doing college applications on a typewriter to kid i hate to like the old man get off my lawn kind of person but <laughs> any kid applying to college right now they can do it on a computer with the stroke of a keyboard where i suppose you had to type those things out and boy was that insufferable yeah and if you had made one area to type the whole letter over again exactly so yeah kids have it better but no it's so you've gone from typewriters to laptops now on the internet but where do you think journalism journalism is heading concern i have journalism right now carl is this i watch espn i'm watching for baseball primarily in the summertime but i watch espn and espn is an operation that's having serious problems right now part of it is americans viewing habits they're going to devices like the phone and watching you know mlb.com on apps and things like that just not tuning into cable but ESPN has also drifted away from doing broadcasting into what would be called the culture of the hot take. Right. It's forever having people on shows and offering hot takes. Uh, you know, A-Rod did this. You know, Tom Brady did that. Just instant hot opinions. Journalism, to me, political journalism, especially Washington-based political journalism, Carl suffers from the same malady. It's just become a culture of the hot take. Well, this is almost an existential problem, and not just for journalism, for democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, the Washington Post now, if you go in their newsroom, they have these really great screens in which they can tell you how many page views and clicks by the minute, constantly updated, which stories are doing good, which are doing bad. It's all over the newsroom. It is a very up-to-date right. um, operation and, and influenced by Jeff Bezos, the culture of Bezos, the, who started Amazon. And, you know, in one sense you think, well, that's that's using the best analytics. The problem with it is that if you... And this began, this became stark when internet journalism began. But it was a problem always. We just didn't recognize it. Um, you know, there was an old phrase you go out as a reporter and some politician would say, oh, you're just trying to sell newspapers. Well, they'd laugh at that. No, we weren't trying to sell newspapers. We didn't care. We had monopolies. Mm-hmm. We didn't care. <laughs> well, now nobody has a monopoly. And, and the old thing that the politicians used to hurl at her, you're just trying to sell newspapers. That is right, man. Um, when the Washington Post had some investigative story about Donald Trump. Now, a story, not, not an opinion column. So they found something Donald Trump was doing wrong with charitable giving. Um, there, Glenn Kessler tweeted out something. You know, we broke the Internet. We broke our record, whatever it was. You know, four million page views in one second or whatever, right? <laughs> but Glenn Kessler is the fact checker at the Washington Post. He's not an ad salesman. Right. Um, if the fact checker at the Washington Post, and he's, I know him, he takes his job very seriously. If the fact checker at the Washington Post is watching clicks, you got a problem. And it's not just them, it's everybody. It's us too. I, I talked to my um, Tom Bevan, our co-founder, just the other day. I assigned a reporter to do, I'm talking out of school here, but Tom wouldn't mind, a five-part series on the budget. Mm-hmm. And Tom sort of gently told me, you know, that's not getting any clicks. Well, but it's an important story. Right. And this tension always existed, but now it's now it's it'll put your company out of business. So if the Washington Post has a monetary interest in writing negative stories about Donald Trump, then you have to weigh integrity, journalistic integrity versus your fiduciary responsibility to the company. Not an easy thing to weigh, especially when they already don't like the guy, and it creates a pressure that, to me, it's it's unsustainable. So who's gonna and, and people don't want to pay for news; they want it all for free anyway. So you've got an environment where if just to get promoted, to stay in business, to get hired, to keep your keep the lights on in your news company, you have to have clicks. You have to be and what gets clicks is 
salacious stuff that appeals to your base. The news, the parties have bases. Now the newsrooms do too. We have a political base, just the way that Republicans and Democrats do. It's not good. Now, is this just a function of, a function of Donald Trump, Carl, or is this the way of the future? It's not a function of Donald Trump. It's a function of, uh, you know, Gordon Moore and you know Robert Noyce inventing the internet, right. the, the semiconductor. <laughs> Go right. back to it, 1968. Right, but, 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 but Donald is, Trump yeah. has brought it all into stark relief, don't right. you think? Well, so it's interesting. So um, Victor Davis Hanson at uh, at Hoover wrote a column about how things maybe wouldn't be. Uh, excuse me, it was uh, Neil Ferguson. Uh, Hoover senior fellow wrote a column uh, the other day for Boston Globe and said that things really wouldn't be that different if Hillary Clinton were president. But what he was going on were personnel matters and certain other things. Uh, but I can't see Hillary Clinton breaking the internet. I think it's something about Trump, both good and bad. Trump in terms of how, how his opponents dislike him so, Trump in terms of how his supporters will just defend him to the death that just, I think, creates this ball of energy which you see manifested through the internet. Well, I yeah, look, yeah. that's right. And I'm about to make Morris Fiorina nervous if he listens to your podcast. For those of you who don't know, Mo Fiorina is the, the, the greatest scholar on polarization in the country in that what, Morris, what Mo has pointed out is for, for years he's shown that the American people are not as polarized as the political parties. The average American person is a pretty sensible, centrist person. But that's changing. And... You know, for years you heard, Bill, you heard people say Bill Clinton was a polarizing president, Barack Obama was polarizing, George W. Bush was polarizing. But what's interesting about that is that you couldn't point to any policies they didn't say they were polarizing. They were people with strong personalities, and Hillary Clinton falls in that category as well. Um, but they weren't, they weren't far left or far right. They shouldn't have been polarizing. What's happening is we live in a polarized environment. And so a president who gets elected, the president's not going to have a honeymoon anymore. That, that's, those, are, those days are gone. You, we're a 50-50 country. And as soon as you get nominated or either president, then half the country hates you because that's what our political parties have decided. That's how they want to campaign. That said, Donald Trump is a polarizing person. Um, and he knows it and relishes it, and he's used it so far to his advantage, but it's also a disadvantage. He enjoys antagonizing people who are his critics. He doesn't try and soften the edges. He doesn't try and do what Bill Clinton... I, I campaign with Bill Clinton, um, Bill, and if there was a voter who disagreed with him, one voter in a state he was going to carry, he'd sit there and spend 50 minutes trying to convince that guy. That's an interesting trait. Donald Trump would be more likely to give the guy the finger the way Rockefeller did that time. Do you know who I think Donald Trump is? I think Donald Trump is Jim Harbaugh. Oh. If you look at Jim Harbaugh's career and how he's been successful as a coach, he makes his living, Carl, by getting inside of people's heads. He came to Stanford, and the first thing he did was he got in the head of Pete Carroll, the USC football coach. They said, <laughs> we're here to do one thing, beat Pete Carroll. And they had very famous incidents on the field with each other. Harbaugh, when you tried to run up the score on Carroll, and Carroll didn't like it. Carroll said, what's your deal? What's your deal, exactly. <laughs> uh, Harbaugh then moves to the San Francisco 49ers, and there's Pete Carroll again, now the Seahawks coach. He makes his mission to go after Pete Carroll. Then he goes to Michigan and makes his mission to get in the head of Urban Meyer, the Ohio State coach. Harbaugh just seems to love to thrive on over-the-top comments, actions, you name it, whatever it is that number one draws attention to Jim Harbaugh, but number two drives his opponents crazy. Okay. Yeah. I like that analogy, but there's one thing. Jim Harbaugh himself was a pretty good college quarterback. Mm -hmm. Pretty good pretty good co co pro quarterback. Not a star. Right. He made he got the most out of his physical gifts, and he's a pretty good football coach. Um, I, Donald Trump has those instincts that Harbaugh has, but the question is, does he have the knowledge base 
to make it work for him as president? Does he know enough about politics and government and the presidency to make it work? It'd almost be like if Harbaugh went to Michigan to coach basketball. Interesting thought. Final question, Carl. I'm going to let you go because I know you need to save your pipes because you have another event tonight. Uh, let's do a little offbeat question here since we haven't talked much about one of your loves and one of mine, which is baseball. If you go to the back of the Carl Cannon book, you'll find a lot of baseball references. <laughs> Put Donald Trump in baseball terms for me. Well, you know, Trump was a good player in high school. For power hitting first baseman. And, you know, he, he, he hit the ball a long way, didn't care if he struck out, and that way he'd be, he was kind of a modern player. Who was that guy? Dave Kingman. That's Trump, Dave Kong. Kingman. Yeah. He doesn't care um, about pure, you know, he doesn't care what the purists think. He doesn't shorten up with two strikes. He's going to eat his 40 dongs no matter what. If he strikes that 200 times, that's your problem. That's Donald Trump. So he's kind of a batting practice presidency. Well, you know, it, look, it can work. Um, yeah, all the all the, ma uh, all the advanced metric guys will tell you that uh, home runs are so so outside size importance you can take strikeouts with them, but it, it only goes so far. You know, is he Dave Kingman, who had a pretty good career, or is he Danny Espinosa, who just got sent down in the minors because he was hitting 161? To extend the metaphor, a lot of baseball today, Carl, is kind of hit or miss baseball. You will... Baltimore Orioles up the road from us. They're full of guys who hit 220, but if they hit 40 home runs, they'll keep them. Well, I think that's Trump's theory. Very good. I know you hate to make predictions, but six months from now, um, are they in the same boat with the media, or who do you think is on this? Does the press give on Trump, or does Trump have to give on the press? <clears throat> I think then. I think six months from now, what we'll be we'll be starting to think. Okay, when is Bob Mueller's report come out? Because mm -hmm. I think uh, it sounds maybe. You know, like I'm washing my hands of it, but Donald Donald Trump's presidency may lie now in the hands of a special prosecutor, and that's not a comfortable situation for any White House. Right. Very good. Carl Cannon, enjoy the talk. Oh, as always, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the Policy Avenue is available to America's 45th president. If you've been enjoying the Area 45 podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellow straight to your inbox. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Carl Cannon, well, where is not Carl Cannon these days? And he's waving the book at me. I'm going to get to it. There's the book on this date. It's just out. Buy one for yourself, your kids, your friends, their kids, anyone who loves history, politics, and pop culture. There is an entire Carl Cannon page at Amazon.com. Stock up on his books. The holidays aren't that far away. Carl is on Twitter. His Twitter feed is, interestingly enough, at Carl Cannon. It was an early adapter. Right. Real Clear Politics is also on Twitter. The Twitter feed for them is at Real Clear News. Last but not least, sign up for the RCP Note, Carl, the morning note. And how do they do that? Just go to our website and click. There'll be a button there, and you click on it, and it's free. Done. Anything else I need to plug for you? No, that's all, buddy. Great. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, and don't forget to stay out of the heat. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.